Sorry. Go ahead. I, go I ahead. was finished. There was an ellipsis oh. at the end of that. I was waiting for Great. <laughs> what is up, people of the podcasting world? Welcome to Take Me to Coffee. You guys, this is a mentorship podcast for the digital age. For the doers, the doers, the booers, the players, the builders, the people who are making things from the ground up. And here's the thing, Andrew and I both know we need a little help sometimes. So this is your weekly chance to pick the brains, get advice from some really smart people. The smartest, actually. Grab a cup and let's get started. For those of you on Patreon, um, our Coffee Club members, you are going to be able to see the sick dance moves that we bring to every single beginning of every fucking episode. We just had a pop and lock battle. You didn't even see it. If you don't know, go over to Patreon right now. We're in a club for that one. One would be surprised to know that both Andrew and I uh, have taken extensive dance class. But if you were to watch that battle, you might have some questions surrounding that. Yeah. Where'd you go to school? Where'd you grow up? How'd you learn to move like that? And you know what? You're going to be able to find out all those things right here (laughs) on this podcast. What if we had an episode of Take Me to Coffee that you and I were the guests on where you could only ask us questions about our dance skills? Based on our ba- dance background? Yeah. Solely on our dance background. What would be the yeah. first question for me? Okay. Uh, I think the first question for me would be, what do you eat in the morning hmm. to be able to sustain such massive energy throughout your movement? That's good. I like that. Just saying. Spinach? Mar- no. God, no. Absolutely not. Protein's not going to be able to sustain that. Does spinach have protein in it? Yeah, spinach has tons of protein. Oh, I was just thinking of Popeye. You know what Jesus. we need to do as a vegetable purveyor on here? Someone like a nutritionist or something to be like, oh, Jess, you've really not been eating the proper things. Bourbon and pizza crusts don't count as protein. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about, even though that's exactly what I ate <laughs> last night. I fucking know you so well. Oh, I know I, you so well. Just mainlining bourbon and fucking I, eating pizza crusts out of an old box. You didn't even no, eat that pizza. You just, it was there. Just the crust. I traveled. Yes. I was traveling all day yesterday and I didn't eat dinner. And so I got home super late and I was like, shit, there's no food in the house. All I have is bourbon and there's a pizza store downstairs. God. See, this is the symbiosis we've been talking about on this podcast since uh, minute one. We've been best it. friends for quite some time, almost 20 years now. And yeah. <laughs> I can't believe that I know what you're eating. <laughs> you fucking nailed you know exactly it. Exactly what you're doing. She hops off a plane. She doesn't shower. She goes straight for the bourbon bottle, puts a straw no. in it, and then <laughs> eats a pizza. <laughs> That's not true. Travel days are hard I know, sometimes. I'm just travel days are hard. By the way, speaking of our dance skills and travel days, I can pull this all together. Okay. I was in Atlanta for the last like handful of days. I saw someone from college and we were discussing a partnering class during college. Okay. We were yeah. trying to figure out who had been partners with you. And I was saying that I refused to dance with anybody else in partnering class except for you and Antoine, because like I'm five, eight and a half and yeah. I've never been, I've always been just sort of normal size, but definitely not like the kind of tiny chorus girl that's like getting thrown around in a musical. And so I was like really, really fearful about that partnering class. I was like, there's no fucking way I'm dancing with anyone by Andrew and Antoine because I know <laughs> that they will keep me safe and also not complain about having to partner with me. <laughs> no, never did I ever. Um, always no, it was we great. Had a great time doing it and we yeah. just laughed at each other the entire time. It was pretty great. It's so true. It was great. Pretty much like this podcast. Uh, sometimes you. I joke around on this podcast that I created it specifically <laughs> for no other reason other than I Andrew's been out of town for two years and I miss him and we never saw each other. So I made a podcast where he'd be forced to talk to me every week. <laughs> It's working. 
<laughs> I'm actually not mad about it. Weirdly. Hey, I see cool. you more now than I saw you when we lived down the street from each <laughs> no. other. It's oh, so God, bad. I it's know. so terrible. It's such a weird little thing, New York City. It's like this, you know, little pockets of people that you see, but then there's also like if you're 40 blocks away from each other, you never see each other. It's the weirdest thing. It's such a weird little microcosm of community. You know, yeah, very you know. What have you been up to these days? Down in Atlanta, traveling a bunch. What are you What are you up to? Yeah, man, been in Atlanta, working on some stuff mm-hmm. for Broadway Unlocked and the Give Back concert, which has been really exciting. Actually, today, uh, I someone Instagram messaged me and asked if I go do master classes for theater students and universities about the intersection of arts and entrepreneurship and activism. Um, I know, and I was like, I really like talking about stuff, and I'd go speak often about the intersection of arts and technology, but right. I've never, never thought about actually formalizing talking about that intersection of entrepreneurship and arts but I do it every day when I'm talking to anyone who will actually listen to me because I don't think there's any difference between <laughs> you don't which is no one credit no one listen, everybody out there listen to listen to how this woman's talking she's she's a brilliant savvy businesswoman she is extremely talented but then she says I don't know if there's anyone listening to me you're one of the smartest people I know you can't oh, do thanks. that to yourself. That's crazy. I know. You know something that happened the other day? S- someone complimented me in an email. Someone was introducing me to someone else via email. Mm-hmm. And in their introduction of me, they said, Jess is one of those people who is so generous in your present that you begin to miss them in your past. What? Thought, Say that again? I've, what? Well, this was some, and this is a quote of someone else. And uh, like, yeah. Jess is so g- generous in my present that I have begun to miss her in my past. And I was like, that's the most meaningful compliment I've ever received. And I'm terrible about compliments, as Andrew has just pointed out. And I am trying, just in the same way I eliminated the word just from emails. Um, yep. I am trying to deflect less compliments. And so I was like, I'm going to be brave. I'm attempting to be brave. Look you directly in the eyes and say, thank you so much. That was such a meaningful compliment. But it is. I don't know. I don't know why it's hard. We should have a podcast episode about that. The difference between guys and, and gals. And, That's interesting because I was actually listening. I was reading it. Uh, and I should have sent this to you, actually, because I thought about you immediately when I did it. But it was about how women and their emailing is like why women don't email like men. Right. Yeah. Oh, I've seen that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. It's an unbelievable article uh, about how women write in a way that is indicative of women, but is perceived as weak over email. Mm-hmm. They use mm-hmm. a lot of words like sorry, I just, uh, a lot of exclamation marks. points, things like that. And it kind of weakens the rhetoric in some people's minds. But I'm like, again, yeah. who fucking cares? Like, Here's the super interesting thing about that, because I'm actually pretty fascinated with that topic. Uh, Number one, there is a position on that thinking that is it weakens the email by a man's standards, but it's not a fucking man's world anymore. And maybe it's not bad to have like be empathetic and be thoughtful and mindful of the other person. So I think that's fascinating. And the day that article came out, someone else, a really awesome uh, uh, boss gal I know, sent it to me and asked if I had seen it. And I said, this is so timely because I was in the middle of negotiating with a big tech company to do a voiceover for them. Um, and I'm pretty good at negotiating and I do enjoy it. But in that email I had written that day, mm-hmm. I had the top of the email in the negotiation was all exactly what we're talking about. Take the word just out. Don't use any exclamation marks. Don't apologize. Like all that stuff. But then like towards the end I absolutely consciously wrote like a softer sentence that had an exclamation mark on it because you know for me being able to like tamper and make me look less aggressive in that way and more like a female they're used to dealing with 
I have found, interestingly enough, helps in negotiation. It helps to like write like a female if right. it's strategic. You know what I mean? So yes. anyway. Yes, absolutely. I get that. And yeah. you know, I found this topic out and I was like, wait, what? Again, another thing that like stupid middle-aged white male Andrew was like taking for granted being like, oh God, that's a real thing. Holy mm-hmm. shit. And then I talked to my wife about it, who I talk about with all this kind of stuff all the time because she's got a really interesting viewpoint. Yeah. And in, in her business, she's a casting director. In her business, she doesn't deal with it quite as much because there's not as much perceived misogyny and, you know, things like that in the writing yeah. form of it. It's a little more progressive. But again, she runs into people sometimes that she's dealing with that are, that are very stern in the way that they write or it's very stoic mm-hmm. and it's, you know, mostly male. Right. I don't understand the tone. Why wouldn't you? know what you? I mean? Like if, right. it, if it doesn't have proper right. parts of grammar or writing <laughs> there's in a it plug-in. to elicit emotion then how am I supposed to know what you're trying to convey? Totally, because it's already hard in email in the exactly. first place. Exactly, it's, it's yeah. hard to discern. But like, imagine uh, you know, epistolary. Epistolary. Imagine if we were pen pals back in the day. Right. And I want to try to write something to you. That's why people were so much more eloquent uh, in their writings. And it was took so much longer to develop something. And now we have this weird shorthand, but you had to literally spell it out and use yeah. punctuation to convey emotion. And yeah, like when you put- do not do that anymore. When you put little hearts um, above the eye for your dots. <laughs> <laughs> yeah really exactly a, really no there's a, a there's a going somewhere and then all of a sudden you brought it back to <laughs> well pretty much this podcast well look that's how i tell people i like them i ha- put hearts over my eyes how's that working for you not that great super single Get out of here. So anybody out there who wants to uh, write a letter into the show, it's at TM2C Podcast on Instagram, Twitter, and please write a letter into Jess and put some hearts over the eyes. I am really disappointed because our guest today... Audrey Treschke, who is this historian, professor at Rutgers, um, and an author of uh, several books, but uh, most famously one about um, an emperor named Aurangzeb in India. She actually has some really interesting perspective on negotiation, and I just realized we never got to it in the episode because she's a female academic in a very, very male-heavy sector of it. And Mm -hmm. um, apparently she was telling me at lunch one day that she is one of the rare academics who negotiate their book contracts. So I've seen her giving out advice on negotiation on Twitter because I I suppose, I don't know, there was just this view that academics couldn't negotiate their book contracts, which is crazy. That's so interesting to me that you don't think that Someone you can negotiate as anything, right? Extremely as well versed and smart. Yeah. Why? Why can't I? I love negotiation. I'm a big yeah. fan of it, actually. Even pre a negotiation that I have my agent negotiate, I'm negotiating with my agent, being like, "Right, this exactly. is what I want. This is what I'm doing." And then he kind of tampers it, tempers it, and he goes, "Well, you're gonna get this. You might not get that." But I was like, "Ask for it all." What are they going to do? Right. Say no? Do you know you that know? I read something super cool that says the negotiation doesn't even start until someone says no. How great is that? No is the most powerful word in the human language. You can yeah. say yes all the time. Yes, I'm a yes man. Yes, I'm a this. Yes, yes, yes. But when you say no to somebody, it makes them stop and actually think about what you're saying. It's a brilliant tool. So that's all to say, actually, if you listen to this episode and you dig it and you're interested in more of what Audrey does, get at us on Twitter. She's at Audrey Treschke and ask some questions about negotiating because she's she's got some really, really good insight about that. But also follow Audrey on Twitter because she has some extremely divisive fan base. It is so like kind of weird. But like weirdly, I'm a voyeur on it. Like I'm looking at it and I'm like, oh my God, she deals with some like serious shit every day, like death threats and shit. You can go back and look at our Twitter feed because we're recording this, what day, like September 11th. So go back through our Twitter feed and you can find a couple of days ago, 
she posted something scholarly because she sticks to facts only, right? Yep. And then this guy from the UK, because I totally went and looked him up, I started doing some digging. Um, he tweeted her, are you trying to wind me up, bitch? She's a professor of like Persian and Sanskrit comparative philosophies. And right. that's what someone tweeted at her. So then I screenshot it and tweeted it and said, if you think that history doesn't matter, you know, this is like just another Tuesday on Twitter for Audrey Trushke. Yep. Even we got retweeted 60 bazillion times by people. We got some nasty comments. And also, I was kind of looking through who followed us after that. And there's a couple of accounts that don't have any tweets going out at Uh, all, which I feel like are troll tweeters. So I'm really, who knows what's going to happen to us. But anyway, God, she is fucking fascinating. And this episode is so good. And it's such a nice break from whatever the fuck your challenges are in your business and the things that you're doing. Just take a nice little 45 minutes to go down the lazy road. River with Audrey. A, a little sabbatical, <laughs> and you learn about the Mughal Empire in India and how it's it's still having socio-political uh, effects now. Right. It's mm-hmm. so wild to listen to. I mean, this blew my mind. Yep. And don't forget, if you'd like to be a guest on TM2C, head over to Twitter and follow us at TM2C Podcast or uh, on Instagram as well to leave us a question or anything that you really want to ask for uh, an upcoming guest. And uh, in the meantime, we hope you enjoy Take Me to Coffee with Audrey Treshke. Me and you, Audrey? Yeah. N- no. Hello. Hi. Handshake. We'll handshake on online handshake. So full disclosure, Audrey and I have known each other since we were 10, I think, right? Shut up. I was nine. Like you were younger. Like Kansas City? I'm the younger. Yeah. Um, we grew up, we grew across, up the across the street. Clearly smarter, though. Clearly. <laughs> that, that's a real race to the top, as it were. <laughs> yeah, right. No, I mean, there's no finish line, but uh, no. you guys keep going. I may have already made it to my finish line on that. I've peaked. I've peaked. <laughs> yeah, so we've known each other since we were 10, and we grew up across the street, and we used to spend summers reading books on the porch together, but separately. Together, but separate. Just like acknowledging each other's existence across the street? Uh, or no, no, literally no, next no, no, to each no. other. Next to each other. Oh, okay. Well, like, I mean, because, you know, we would like exchange books when each other was were done you know oh, so we had to be in close was proximity. it so was, this was like an early book club kind of a thing that you guys had going on with just us two nerds yeah two <laughs> dude i'm so into that god i wish i learned how to read except it was it would be like what do you want to do today on this summer day we're off from school do you want to read books on the porch <laughs> i don't recall ever asking but <laughs> that's fair no. too so jess forced you into that too oh you know i did end up becoming a professor so reading is sort of my thing yeah, but yeah. so thanks thanks to me basically you, you, is what you we're steered saying. her in that direction i appreciate that thank you <laughs> I also this summer just told someone about growing up with Audrey because we were playing games in the cabin in Colorado. And I was like, here's another thing mm-hmm. my best friend Audrey and I used to do. We would play games like Boggle and Pinochle or Canasta. Canasta. We mm-hmm. played Canasta a lot. Canasta. Um, and we were too smart for our own good. So at some point we decided that it would be more interesting rather than just playing the games to start cheating against each other and see who could <laughs> cheat the best at the game and get away that with it. That was a lot of fun. Wow. <laughs> That's like some uh, yeah. like serial killer type attitudes there. I appreciate that. 
or high thinkers. Or both. You know, ironically, I bust students all the time for cheating now. <laughs> I think that's genius. Well, I mean, you've had to have cheated to see the, the manipulation being taken, right? Oh, that's true. I am very good at catching cheating. Oh, <laughs> Maybe that's yeah. true. <laughs> nobody's getting, nobody's pulling one over on you. And not so far I as I know. That. Speaking so. of, like, I think, so with Audrey, because I've had the great fortune to know her forever, but uh, she, Audrey, of all of our guests on Take Me to Coffee this season, has a crazy background and story. So I actually, we try to not do like the traditional, tell me how you got to where you are now, but with you... I think we should do that for our listeners. And I also want to know. I'm I'm a right, I'm I'm right. a listener here. So you went to college for I can't even repeat the degree. Can you please tell me what that degree was? What my original BA in religious studies? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 But was it? Didn't you have? Did you have an emphasis back then or no? I did. I mean, I originally thought you know I I intended to just study religion. Generally, that meant Christianity and Judaism to me. Like growing up in the suburbs of Kansas City, Missouri, um, that's sort of what I knew. I pretty quickly took a class on Hinduism. I sort of fell in love with it, but I was sort of completely confused by it as well. I had sort of no framework to make sense of the multitude of Hindu gods and how people interacted with them. And so I thought that that was really my problem. Like, it's my problem that I didn't know how to make sense of this, you know, different world. Uh, and so I thought I should figure that out. And I'm still figuring it out 20 years later. <laughs> um, so what is it? I grew up also in the in the Midwest kind of South area. I uh, went to school with Jess at uh, Missouri State. And... I found myself seeking answers to religious questions as well, like from growing up at an early age and things like that. I found myself in a lot of theology classes, a lot of religious studies, I almost had a minor in it almost because I was so interested in just like the critical thinking aspect of it all. And um, I'm interested in what was the kind of impetus for you to find religion as a course of study? Was it that you had questions like I did? Was it more the, the was it a clinical thing or was it more like, I want to be a smarter person or I want to think in a different way, or I want to understand that. What, what, uh, there are a lot of questions in there. What was kind of the, the driving force behind mm. that for you? That's a really interesting question. I have to say I've given that relatively little thought in a sense. Uh, religion is is arguably the most longstanding interest in my life and the most sort of consistent one. Uh, so I don't know that I've really reflected on why that is. I suppose it's just because it's a huge part of human existence. And it's something that seems to exist in one form or another in basically every human society that we have ever discovered. Um, and so I want to know what it's all about and why it takes so many different forms. I guess that's one thing that has always interested me about religion is that it's not religion with a capital R that's the same everywhere, right? Yeah. Like, you know, religion looks very different in different traditions and in different times and places and for different people. And so I just want to know what that's about. Um, you know, and the, the academic study of religion allows you to to ask questions of a wide variety of traditions, right? As opposed to merely the tradition that you were born into or that you elect to follow. Um, and I'm interested in that sort of breadth as well. And in my work, I cross over numerous religious traditions now. So you're in college, you're getting a religious studies degree, uh, undergraduate. Yeah. And then what takes you from there to your graduate studies? Like your oh. Yeah. Right. Okay. Well, so when I was an undergraduate and I became interested in Hinduism, I decided to learn Sanskrit. And keep in mind that I'm at the University of Chicago, where our motto is where fun comes to die. So it seemed very normal to like just start taking mad amounts of Sanskrit. Like that's not normal to most 18 year olds, but that, that was very normal in my very particular University of Chicago context. So by the time I graduated at the age of 21, uh, I had done four years of Sanskrit as an undergraduate. Wow. Uh, shockingly, that like that wasn't great on the job market, right? Like walking in and being like, I can translate the Bhagavad Gita for you right now, like didn't really get me a job. Uh, so, you know, 
I tried the real world and it took me three months in the quote real world to, uh, to, to, to discover that I wanted to go back to the academy. Um, four years of Sanskrit is excellent for applying to graduate school. Uh, so then I, I decided to go to Columbia University and I did a PhD. I got two MA degrees along the way, but the PhD is the big degree that you need. That took me seven years. By the time I finished, I was 30, which is actually fairly young for a humanities PhD. Yeah. Um, I, I had found what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. And it took me several years after that to land a full-time tenure track job. The academic job market is very harsh right now uh, and shows no signs of changing. But now that I've sort of gotten in um, you know, and have a tenure track job, it's pretty incredible. What was your PhD thesis on? Oh, yeah. So for the PhD, so it was in area studies. So it's defined by the world, the world area that you study. So it was in South Asian studies. And I focused on sort of Hindu and Muslim interactions in early modern India. So the 16th and 17th centuries. You know, so people, people talk a lot about Hindu and Muslim interactions and tensions today. And my question was, you know, sort of, well, what were these people doing like three to 400 years ago? Do, did the communities even look the same? Like, was there a Hindu community like we talk about it today? Was there a Muslim community like we talk about it today? Um, and I very specifically focused on Sanskrit at the Mughal courts. The Mughals were a Muslim dynasty. Sanskrit Sanskrit is generally associated more with Hinduism and other Indic religions. Um, and so why do you have these Muslim rulers that are like totally into all this Hindu stuff? That was sort of generally put the driving question of my dissertation. Yeah, I've got really nothing oh. to say to that. I'm, I'm fascinated by all of this. It's, it's No, it's not boring <laughs> to me. It's, it's fascinating. I have so many more questions like origin stories, you know, things like that. And I think that's kind of what we're going for here is that you're trying to find out why things are happening now based off of, you know, what was the, the, the culture and the, the class system or whatever that is like three to 400 years ago. And I mean, we're still questioning that today in America and things like that, but I'm fascinated by this. Way earlier than that, right? Oh, in ter- I mean, in terms of the origin, I mean, where where the Hindu caste system comes from and how far back it goes is a huge question that many people have, have struggled to answer. Um, but I mean, the origins go back 3,500 years, at least, if not more. Wow. Um, but as it exists today, 100 years max. So you know, change over time, right? Like things are always changing in the course of history. Of course. So holy. How many folks have come before you in this particular area of study? Anybody? Oh. Really focusing on No, this? no. So um one thing that is unusual about my academic training is that I read both Sanskrit and Persian. Um, Sanskrit was the language of sort of Hindu and associated elites in pre-modern India. Persian was the language of Muslim elites in pre-modern India. Most people do one or the other. To combine the two of them has given me access to a unique archive and allowed me to pose different sorts of questions. You know, there there were, of course, articles before me and people, you know, making points here and there, but there was no book on Sanskrit at the Mughal courts until I wrote it. Why do you think that is? That's a long time to go without um, anyone looking at that. I mean, I suppose some of it is just that, you know, there's always a lot to study in pre-modern India. Sure. Um, but, I, you know, I think I think some of it is also um, just our assumptions today. We think of Hindus and Muslims as separate. These are two separate groups. They're two separate religious communities, and you can pretty neatly distinguish them. That's a questionable assumption, to put it lightly, for modernity. But for early modernity, I mean, it's just it's almost completely wacko to think like that. Um, but that said, we always investigate the past through the lens of the present, Mm -hmm. right? Like you can never change the fact Mm -hmm. that you are in a moment in history. Academics, we try very hard. Part of what we want to do is to try to overcome our present day biases, but that's hard. So now you're 
you've got a tenure track professor professorship professorship yeah sure sure, sure. <laughs> yeah professorship uh <laughs> and you're writing books right yes and you're a twitter warrior <laughs> Well, I'm on Twitter. Let's not go too far on that. But <laughs> well, I you said I could refer to you as a Twitter shitster. Do you have that in writing? <laughs> yeah, in a text, I do. <laughs> Can I deny that? I think I actually wrote that. But I actually, I I wanted to ask you, like, why were you inspired to use Twitter as a vehicle for your profession? How do you use it, and to what end? Mm. Okay, so that that's a great question. So, I I started using Twitter for different reasons than what I use it for now. I started using Twitter for self promotion, right? Like that that was the original <laughs> impetus. Is that like it's hard to get an academic job? It's hard to keep an academic job. It's hard to get people to know who you are. And I thought that having a social media presence on both Facebook and on Twitter would help me get my name out there, get my articles out there, things like that. That worked. And I still, of course, promote my writings and, you know, scholarship and talks and stuff on Twitter. But I also have found myself, maybe the best way to say this is that the world sort of changed around me. Um, the academic world changed, but even more so the Indian political world has changed pretty radically in the past five plus years. And so I found myself in a position to to speak to issues that people care about now. And Twitter is an important medium all over the world. It is perhaps especially so in India, even more so than in the United States. And so I now have, I don't know, over 30,000 followers and find myself in a position to comment on both matters of Indian history that are of interest to people today and also on Indian politics. Why do you think Twitter is more important over in India? I'm not, in, I'm not entirely sure exactly how or why that developed. Um, you know, I mean, part of it now is that uh, the, the BJP, which is the major political party right now in India, they're in control of the central government, what we would call the federal government. Uh, they are masters at using Twitter. They use it to get their message out. They use it to silence their critics. They have an entire Twitter troll army that they stick on people, uh, which has included me at a couple of unfortunate moments from my perspective. Um, <laughs> so they're really good at using Twitter. And, you know, when you have your prime minister tweeting like 30 times a day as the Indian prime minister does, everyone's got to pay attention to that. Whoa. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny to me that there's a weird parallel between what we're doing in this country as well right now is that we've, you know, Donald Trump is using Twitter as a, a kind of a battleground in a way. Oh, absolutely. I mean, Trump, you know, you know, if you can step back from the ugly politics, I mean, and appreciate he is a mastermind at using the medium. Uh, that said, I mean, Prime Minister Modi is even better. Yeah. Again, stepping back from how one feels about that. Politics. Yeah, yeah, of course, of course. Uh, okay, so we are on Take, the Coffee, Take Me to Coffee podcast. I have to get the, the perfunctory stuff out of the way. Um, so what kind of coffee are you drinking right there? I see you got a Starbucks cup. What's in it? Uh, tea. Tea? Okay, so not coffee. <laughs> Where'd you get the tea from? Was it Starbucks? Uh, we're just we're just looking for sponsorship. That's all we're doing here. Mighty Leaf. Ah, okay, Mighty Leaf. Okay, well, if Mighty Leaf's out there, give us a uh, you know, give us money. <laughs> so that was my one small thing to add tea. to this conversation. Take Wonderful take me tea. to coffee. I actually have a good shout out about coffee today. I am drinking for once. Um, I just got back from a trip to Oregon to see my brother, and we went to Ashland to see the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, and I picked up a a bag of coffee from Case Roasters in Ashland, and let me tell you mm. something. It is real fucking good. Oh, it's got like notes of maple and grape. Blueberry. Ooh, interesting. Well, I know. <laughs> right, into that. Into that. What are you drinking, Andrew? Um, today, you know, same old, same old. But I did. Uh, I went the iced route today with the Intelligentsia House Blend. Ooh, iced. Nice. I went that route. I can't nice. have coffee this late in the afternoon. It drives me absolutely bonkers. I'm getting old. 
Coffee affects me. Just what happens. That's <laughs> what happens when you get old. Well, another thing we do on Take Me to Coffee is take questions from our listeners and some of your fans. So we've got a good one to kick us off. Let's uh, let's hear about it. Hi, Aubrey. Thank you for this opportunity. I would like to ask you a couple of questions. Uh, first, if you were to describe Aurangzeb in only a few words, what would you say? The second question is, is what influence did the Mughal Empire had on India uh, that we continue to see today? Thank you. Okay, first, let's step back to that first question. And I couldn't understand the name he said. And will you also explain it to us before you answer this question? <laughs> yes, please. Absolutely. So he is asking about Emperor Aurangzeb Alamgir. So Aurangzeb was the most powerful of the Mughal emperors. He was also the last of the major Mughal emperors. Uh, many people blame him for sort of decimating the kingdom, as it were. Um, Aurangzeb is a lightning rod for controversy today. He's sort of everyone's favorite Muslim to hate in India. Uh, he died, by the way, in 1707. So like, you know, Aurangzeb hasn't been around for more than 300 years, but he seems to grow in controversy every year right now in India. India. Basically, the the sort of the Hindu nationalists uh, who want India to be a nation for Hindus by Hindus, they use Aurangzeb as a sort of basically as a dog whistle, right? Mm. Hating on Aurangzeb signals their ex an acceptance of hating on and using violence against present day Indian Muslims. Muslims are about fourteen percent of all Indians, so there's a lot of Indian Muslims. Is, is my mm. point. Anyways, uh, I'm, I'm an expert on Aurangzeb. Uh, I published a book on him a couple of years ago that got a lot of press. It was, it was controversial, especially in India. So the question, how to describe Aurangzeb in a few words? I would say power hungry, sometimes pious, always a king, definitely power hungry. <laughs> to, to elaborate slightly on that, um, many people think... Uh, that, that Aurangzeb was sort of overly pious, right? He was too religious. He was too Muslim. In fact, he was a zealot. He hated all Hindus. He went around smashing Hindu temples everywhere he could find them and trying to impose Sharia law. I mean, you can hear the echoes with the Taliban and Islamophobia oh, and yeah. stuff with that sort of rhetoric, yeah. right? And, you know, Aurangzeb, I mean, he was sometimes pious. Uh, he, you know, prayed occasionally. He was a practicing Muslim, uh, but he was a king above all else. And he was a power-hungry king. He sought to expand his territory. Um, and one thing that I do in the book is I point out several moments where Aurangzeb's piety and thirst for power conflicted, and he chose power every single time. Power above all else. Okay, the second question, influence of the Mughal Empire that we can still see today. So I think you can see a lot of different things. Certainly uh, Indian cuisine in northern India is uh, it's inconceivable without the Mughals. I mean, you still have dishes called Mughlai, for example, oh, like of right. the Mughals, mm -hmm. and just the spices and things like that. You know, I'm thinking also here, uh, I think it was yesterday. Yeah. yeah, yesterday was Indian Independence Day. And so the prime minister of India gave a speech, as the prime minister of India does, and he gave it in front of the Red Fort in Delhi, which is where the prime minister always gives the Independence Day speech. Shah Jahan, who was Aurangzeb's father, built that fort. It was a massive symbol of Mughal sovereignty. It then became a symbol of the British Empire in India and their sovereignty, and it has now finally become a symbol of independent India's sovereignty. Nationally. Even though India is run by Hindu nationalists, even though they huh. hate the Mughals more and more every year, they still give that Independence Day speech standing in front of Shah Jahan's fort. There's a reason for that. 
Hey guys, Jess here, doing a little editing on the episode. For those of you who are super savvy uh, listeners, you might have noticed that in the beginning of the episode, we said it was September 11th, but just now Audrey said it was the day after Independence Day in India. We recorded this on two different days, so indeed, the intro was recorded on September 11th, and indeed, the episode was recorded on the day after India Independence Day. Just wanted to make a little note. I want to go back to the dog whistle thing that you were talking about. I was just telling a friend of mine today that they should follow you on Twitter just for, like, sport, and my friend expressed, you know, he's like, I don't know if I can do that, and I was like, but here's the great thing about Audrey on Twitter is that, like, hers is a war of facts, in a really Mm. heated emotional situation. So I I think talking about, tell me again how to say the king's name, Aurangzeb. Aurangzeb. So being an expert on Aurangzeb and having him be so controversial. And can you just talk a little bit about like your framework for how you approach these issues on Twitter and how you interact with a highly heated emotional argument? It doesn't have to be about the you know, the actual topic, I think, mm. generally being a fact based person in a emotionally filled world on Twitter. I'm curious about your experience there. Absolutely. So I guess I try to do a, sort of a couple of different things. One is like, I do have this sort of the, the strong foundation that all historians have in facticity, right? And stuff that actually happened. And I mean, historians hate being reduced to just the facts, right? Because we like to think that we do so much more than that. But in this instance, like there is so much misinformation about Aurangzeb that I, I calmly point out facts about him. And, you know, the other side, they don't point out facts. They make up stuff, which is why they scream and why they yell and why they attack me and why they call me names, because those are the only arguments they have. Um, Mm. I refuse to engage on that level. Like, I'm not going to call names back. That's ridiculous. Um, But I am going to continue repeating what what the evidence suggests in, you know, what the documents tell us. I think that this may be a losing strategy, right? I mean, we're we're seeing a sort of hard right-wing turn across the world right now. And I mean, we have problems in America with bastardized versions of our own history. Um, And often people prefer the myth to, to the reality. But as, you know, as a professional academic and historian, I mean, I cannot change my ethical obligation to the facts. And I think that that still does speak to some people. Another thing that I try to do on Twitter is I try to point out to people why others are lying to them. You don't make up something about a guy who's been dead and buried for over 300 years unless it serves some purpose today, right? (laughs) You think that hating Aurangzeb is just about talking about some guy who ruled 400 years ago. That's not true. Here is why these people are making up this stuff. Here's where they're trying to lead you, right? And that's a sort of set of arguments that I try to put out there. And then I guess, you know, a sort of third thing that I try to do, and this is to a smaller audience, is for other academics to just sort of show what it looks like right? Like, what does it look like to be a public intellectual and to engage? And mm-hmm. I would I would not be so arrogant just to hold myself up as a model. But I think that, you know, my colleagues can look and judge for themselves. Do they think that this is valuable or not? Uh, are they willing to face what I face? And many academics who work on South Asia uh, are not willing to, to face the, the heat and the public scrutiny on, on Twitter. And that is completely understandable. Uh, you know, I mean, I get up to and including death and rape threats. And, you know, no one should get that for you know, writing about dead people as the truth and also just spitting facts. 
Right. Um, but that's where facts. we're at, right? <laughs> so, like, I don't blame my colleagues, but, you know, like, I think that there are there are many people, especially younger academics, who are interested in this public engagement, who don't want to just hide in the ivory tower. Um, and so, you know, I am one of many on Twitter who's, you know, trying it out, and other academics can look to me and think, like, that's a good idea or that's not such a good idea, right? <laughs> wow. I mean, speaking of hate, I think that leads right into ours perfectly into our second question. So here we go. Hi, Audrey. Uh, my name is Srikant. Please call me SK and I'm from Bangalore, India. And thanks for this opportunity to uh, ask you a question. And my question to you is, among all the uh, hate and uh, comments that you get from the extreme right wing, I kind of wonder how do you motivate yourself? You know, I yes, I know you have tweeted a lot of an academic's a job is to be an academian, to share facts and not to side with anyone. But having said that, when you get so much of hate, you know, aren't there days that you just you just think of yourself, I'm done with this, you know, I, I think I chose the wrong profession or something like that. And I'm also a huge fan of Romila Tapper and I, I can see that how your works kind of correlate with, with what I read from her because both of you just don't give a damn of, of what people want to rewrite. You share facts at facts. That's it. Thank you so much. Okay, so I'm very, I'm very glad that SK asked me this question. Um, so a couple of things, you know, how do I deal with it? How do I put up with it? One is that I do get fan mail. I mean, what SK just said, I would call that's fan mail. Uh, you know, and I, much of the fan mail is not as visible. You know, if you tag me in a tweet and say something positive, you're likely to get some hate mail yourself and some hate tweets in response. So understandably, mm. many people prefer to send me private messages about that, whether it's on WhatsApp or email. Um, I don't always respond to those, but let me say to everyone who has ever written me one that they mean a lot uh, and it does motivate me. And I really do appreciate hearing from people. I also get what I would call sort of like, I don't know, middling mail, like not really fan mail, but not really hate mail. <laughs> and it, it's actually my favorite. So I got this email once, this is probably a year and a half ago now, from a guy. This is in the first year after my Aurangzeb book came out. And he said, look, I bought your book and I tried to read it. But then like my auntie took it away and read it. And then when she was done, I tried to get it. But then grandpa took it away and read it. And like two months later, this poor guy like finally reads it. <laughs> but in the meantime, his whole family has read it. And he said that a month had then gone past and they've been arguing about Aurangzeb at the dinner table every night ever since. That's awesome. Is that not incredible? Right. So like- Unbelievable. Talk, talk about making a difference. And talk, I mean, that's what I wanted to do is that I felt like there's all this misinformation Many academics don't want to write for a popular audience, especially in the Indian context. And so, like, why not do this? And, like, for the people who are hungry for an alternative view that is based in a solid understanding of history and historical method, like, why not give them some information? So that sort of thing. The largely silent middle ground that mm. I think is out there uh, motivates me. I would also, you know, sort of two other small things. One is that I naturally have a thick skin. Uh, Jess, you know this. Uh, this, this goes way back. <laughs> this is a, a feature of my personality. And it's a piece of advice that I give to other academics regularly, which is know yourself, right? And know how much you can take. Yeah. I have colleagues who have faced similar heat and even worse to what I have faced in the public sphere who are very thin skinned and it has been much harder for them. And that's something like, I don't know how you develop a thin or a thick skin, but like, know yourself and like make appropriate decisions. I think the last thing that motivates me is sort of seeing, seeing the, the situation uh, with, the, with the academy in India right now. Um, you know, the Indian government is undergoing pretty serious efforts to silence academics and they are succeeding. And as I watch that happen, like as I watch India's great universities sort of fall, especially on the humanities side, and I see academics lose their jobs and lose their homes and have their livelihoods threatened, you know, they can't speak out 
um, because they're Indian citizens and because they live there and because the government can touch their lives in a thousand different ways. And I don't live there and I'm not an Indian citizen, right? I'm an American citizen who's based in New Jersey and I love India and I love traveling there, but the Indian government does not have the same control over me. They can't speak up. So does that not increase the pressure on me to speak up? Right. It's an, it's really interesting being like a close friend of yours because you, uh, for me, I sort of live this like dialectic existence with what you do. One side of it is like, I'm just like, absolutely like do your shit and like, I can't worry about it. But sometimes Audrey will call me (laughs) the year she was like, I'm going to live in Pakistan for a year or whatever. And it was not a great year for shit going on in Pakistan and United States. And then like this year, she was like, I can't go to India anymore. I might be assassinated. And then she was like, I'm going to India. (laughs) It's like, can you text me when you get there? (laughs) You know, I did have protection when I spoke at certain sensitive locations. So yeah. But it's weird, right? It's, I mean, it's exciting. I think it's at the heart of being an activist, no matter how you choose to be an activist, whether it's through your art, whether it's through your platform, like Andrew does for charities, or whether it's through your academic work in the way you do, like the risk has to be a part of it. But man, to watch your your people you care about, you know, really go balls to the wall uh, as you do with the work that you do is a, I actually feel pretty privileged to watch it. Oh, thanks. Yeah. I'm also scared sometimes, but that's okay. It's just part of the gig. Well, <laughs> you know, I think I think I'm gonna be okay. Um, and, you know, I mean, part of this is that I do have a position of pretty incredible privilege. Like I said, mm-hmm. I'm, a, I'm a U.S. citizen. I'm based here, right? Um, you know, I have a tenure track job. Most academics in America do not have tenure track jobs anymore, right? right? If I get tenure, yeah. uh, which is always a big if, but if I do, I will have the strongest form of job protection that has ever existed right? I teach at Rutgers Newark where the faculty is unionized. We've been unionized for, I don't know, I think 40 years, maybe more. Um, That comes with a lot of additional protection. You know, I have an administration that really has my back and is really supportive. Many academics have none of that. And I have all of that that enables me to do what I do. So I'm not, I'm not doing it alone. Right. Have you seen, um, actually our producer, Emily just sent through, did, did you see Hassan Minaj's Patriot, Patriot Act? episode on netflix about indian politics uh i did not no well we won't talk about it it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) she was mentioning that it's interesting that it brings indian politics into the pop culture we'll put the link on yeah emily um yeah i can cut in i'm a huge fan of that show actually and he he does these coverages on very different topics every episode and um being Indian American and Muslim himself, he kind of like popped it in there and was like, yeah, I think the Indian government's really going to hate me for doing this. Everyone tells me not to do it. Um, But he still released this episode on Netflix on like this widely, obviously popular pop culture platform. So I thought it might be interesting. I don't know, even if you haven't seen it, if you see that as part of like a pop pop culture thing, obviously on Twitter, you see it as like a topic that's being talked about, but um, seeping its way into other like popular media as well. Hmm. That's an interesting question. So, I mean, I would say that um, due largely to demographic shifts, I think that you're going to start to hear more and more about Indian politics. Uh, Indians Mm -hmm. are about 1%. People of Indian descent are about 1% of Americans right now. There's actually a really good book on this called The Other 1% the 1% that are Indians. Anyways. Um, <laughs> so like, I mean, obviously as the, as the percentage of people of Indian descent grows in 
the United States, you're just going to hear more and more about it. And I think that voices, you know, minority voices within that population are pretty important. Um, Indian immigration to America is Hindu dominated, which simply reflects demographics in India. Hindu nationalism as a sort of political ideology is very strong among many Indian Americans. So, you know, I was talking before about how, you know, much of the hate I face, it is at a distance. Um, but some of it is also actually very local for me. The Hindu nationalists are very strong in New Jersey. So I do get attacked by wow. New Jerseyites, by literally my neighbors. Um, New Jersey isn't that big. So that's terrifying. <laughs> that's um, mm. Also, on that note, I mean, as our American, like American political landscape gets more diversified, right? I saw you were told you had tweeted out some information about political contributions of a woman who was running for high office here in the United States that had some like serious implications over in India. And I was oh, like, Tulsi oh, Tulsi Gabbard. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I'm very happy to talk about that. No, okay. I mean, Tulsi Gabbard. <laughs> Is like, like, I cannot believe that. she's still running, right? Like, look, her running for the Democratic ticket for presidency trades on the ignorance of Americans. If Americans were aware, if especially left leaning Americans, right, the people who are like voting whether she's going to run for the Democratic ticket, if they were aware of Hindu nationalism and like what it stands for, like she would be toast within the party. Um, and so, I mean, in that sense, like, you know, anything that Hassan Minaj or anyone else can do to like bring this to wider attention, like I'm a huge fan of. Many things about India have seeped into more general culture. And like, I'm glad that people love Bollywood. I love Bollywood too. Like you want to do yoga. I think that that's fantastic. But like, there is a dark side as well. And I think mm. that people need to be aware of that. Um, but yeah, I mean, Tulsi Gabbard obviously has, I mean, she has you know, a list a mile long, it seems, of problems. Um, but I mean, her ties with Hindu nationalism, I think, are very extreme um, and make her patently unfit to run for any office in the United States, especially on with the Democrat Party. Sorry. See, this is where I'm, I'm very so firm wow. views on Yeah, this no, I love this. I'm like, God, yeah. <laughs> you have yeah, to follow yeah. Audrey on Twitter because I, oh, there's I've, too don't much worry, to I'm, I'm paying attention. <laughs> I am a follower. I know mean, something about the Gabbard thing. Just, I guess it really upsets me because of the ignorance aspect. I feel like yeah. most people who support her, if they understood what Hindu nationalism was about, that that they would not support this. And she hides. She hides behind this veil of like, oh, this is all like anti-Hindu stuff. And like, frankly, I think that that's highly offensive because there is real anti-Hindu sentiments. Like that is a real thing that exists in the world that people suffer from. Mm. Tulsi Gabbard getting correctly criticized for her links to a violent political ideology that is not Hinduism, but Hindutva sounds similar, but totally different. Like that is not anti-Hindu anti sentiment. That is a completely legitimate set of criticisms. Um, so honestly, I think she should have a little bit more respect for those who actually endure anti-Hindu sentiments. And so on that on that topic, do you do you see a lot do you, in America? I mean, we clearly don't understand Hindu culture the way that we should. You know, people just not being knowledgeable of another part of the world, and that's something we're just not taught in schools and things like that. And I feel like somebody as an academic of yourself who deals with Hinduism and that part of the country a lot, do you think mm. that's important? Um, so I'm a big fan of basic religious literacy. Uh, I'm a huge fan, mm -hmm. actually, of teaching it in primary and secondary schools, right? Like, just like what the major holidays are, major beliefs, like, uh, obviously not proselytizing on behalf of any specific tradition, but just, you know, I, you know, I actually think it's, uh, it's actually really well suited to school education, because we are giving more and more days off for different religions holidays. Mm -hmm. So like, let's explain why, right? Like New York City public schools don't, they don't go to school on Eid anymore. 
let's have a conversation about what exactly Eid is and what it celebrates, right? Right. You know, the, the Hindu community, all communities have been hit. Um, I think that Islamophobia and anti-Muslim sentiment, you obviously see the most uh, in America. And you also see people sort of get wrongly caught up in that. Uh, the, the, the sort of classic example there are Sikhs, also pronounced Sikh. Um, this is an Indian religion, uh, came into existence roughly 500 plus years ago. Um, and they were, the men were turbans and many Americans see that turban and they think Muslim. Um, so there have been right. numerous attacks, right. And murders of, of Sikhs yeah. to that. So, so, so get yeah. smart but people. What to wind it around to theater. Cause we always do on this podcast and Sandra and I are both in the theater. Audrey like gave me a present one year and it's a book about this playwright named Kalidasa. He was a poet, but like also playwright. It's mm-hmm. the earliest recorded fucking plays are Sanskrit plays. I have taken more hours of theater history than anyone who has a degree in tap dancing should. And not once did we learn about Kalidasa or there's about three playwrights, right? That have record like remaining recorded Sanskrit plays. Oh, from I mean, from early, I mean, yes, but I mean, there's way, way more. I mean, Sanskrit had right. by far, right. I think the most well-developed theatrical, you know, sort of play-based tradition of any pre-modern society by a long shot. I was um, flabbergasted. Yeah. So it's pretty cool. You know, they still, they still perform some of them occasionally. And, yeah. and, and I mean, we know, like, I don't think I learned about this in college or it was just passing, but there was a production in New York really soon after I moved there about, I'm going to, I think, mis- mispronounce it, but the Mahab- Mahabharata. What? Mahabharata? Thank you. Mahabharata. No Got yes. it? Yeah. So like <laughs> that, I guess, is kind of in, like if you're a, the- a real, you know, professional theater person, I suppose that's in your consciousness, which is part of this um, sort of like canon of work. But I don't know. I just, she gave me that book and I was like, how the fuck did we not learn about this? <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's in a language that not that many people read. So <laughs> yeah, but the book's in English. <laughs> That's you know true. what I mean? There's a textbook. I gave it nice recently. I bought yeah. a copy from The Strand the other day and gave it as a gift to a, someone I met this year who also is a huge, has a best friend who is a, ex, a Sanskrit professor and um, is really into the Sanskrit influence on theater. So just so you know, I've paid it forward and I even shared that book with someone. I'm thrilled to hear that. I, I'm interested, actually. That kind of makes me think like as a historian of language and of culture, do you think that we as a society are losing touch with the actual roots of where we come from and what we're doing because we don't, we're starting to lose things, you know what I mean? Through translation and through just lack of knowledge. I mean, you have people like yourselves who study the old text, like that kind of thing. Mm, Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So yeah, Sanskrit is still used for sort of like uh, basically for liturgical purposes now. Um, Right. And then there are scholars who study it and there's sort of like, the Western-based scholars like me, and there is also still a traditional class of scholars in India of, of pundits uh, who do study Sanskrit, but their numbers are shrinking pretty dramatically right now. That's not going to survive that much longer. And why do you why do you think that is? I mean, is it just like people just don't care anymore because we're moving on as a as a society, or the world is moving forward, or what has caused or is causing the end of these sort of cosmopolitan languages like Sanskrit? That that is a huge question. Um, you know, in a sense, I guess. Maybe this is surprising, but I don't actually mourn this that much. Like, I, I'm, I'm not convinced that this is a loss in a, a sort of ultimate sense. I want to retain access to these traditions, but I don't want to freeze history, right? Mm. You're always... Or the evolution stuff. of language and where we're going. Yeah, okay, I get right, that. Right, because, you know, I mean, like, 400 years ago, people were still writing texts in Sanskrit, but 
English was like a shell of what it is become now. Like now we have like multiple strands of, Indi- of English, like American English, British English, Indian English is like, it's a whole different thing. We, you know, different words, right. different accents, right? Like things change and I don't have a problem with that. I do think it's important to have people who continue to study stuff from an academic and historical perspective. And I wish that people read more in general, you know, <laughs> less TV, more reading, but you know. There you go. Can't have everything. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go to another question from one of our listeners. Hello, Audrey. My name is Anshman. I'm from India. Uh, my question is this. What advice do you have for writers of historical fiction, uh, especially for work set in uh, India during the Mughal era, for instance, on which you are an authority? Uh, so what do you think are the most common mistakes that uh, writers should avoid? And uh, also would love to know the names of any authors of historical fiction that you particularly recommend or you or that you like. Thank you. Mm. Okay, so historical fiction, uh, th- 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 this is a genre that I think historians uh, sort of do not agree upon. Um, I know historians who refuse to read historical fiction and think that it's like really <laughs> dangerous and like it'll creep into your historical thinking and all this like crazy stuff. I actually really like historical fiction, uh, probably just because I like history and I like fiction. So why not bring them together? Yeah. It's like yeah. chocolate and ice cream and chocolate sauce. Like why not combine them? <laughs> um, I mean, I don't write historical fiction, but I would say from the sort of the historian hard history side, uh, my advice would be one to read very widely in terms of the history and to get sort of a lot of different views and a lot of different information, bring it all together. The other piece of advice I would give, and this is based on an error that I see people making, is to revel in difference, right? And to really try to wrap your mind as a historical fiction writer around a world that looked really different. I read a lot of historical fiction where the writer just seems to assume that the categories that we operate with today existed back then, Mm. that people spoke a language we can identify as Hindi 500 years ago, that there were Hindus, like Hindus didn't call themselves Hindu 500 years ago. That would seem to be an important fact, right? And to me, what you're missing there is an opportunity because that's part of what is so fascinating about the past is that people lived really differently than we do today. And not just because they didn't like, you know, have running water and stuff like this, but because they ordered themselves and their identities and how they related to one another and their political selves, all of that looked really radically different. And that's part of the excitement, right? So why not try to bring that alive? Agreed. Yeah. But then again, do you lose the drama though? I mean, is there is there something about just spitting facts? I mean, you have to be a great writer to be able to like spin something in a way that's like if you can take the truth and tell that in a really interesting way, sometimes that's not the most interesting way, you know? And then you have like the Dan Browns of the world who like take you on this adventure but also teach you things. Maybe they're not true things. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> So, I mean, it is, it is the prerogative of all novelists, right, to get the facts wrong. Right? I mean, that's part of what it means to write fiction is that you can rewrite the story if you don't like it. And that that is a, a sort of privilege that historians do not have. Um, and that's something I've actually written about academically is like, what do we do when as academics we are telling a poorer story in terms of the narrative, like a much less compelling story than like the myth that we're trying to debunk? Right, right. And like, as a historian, I don't really have an answer to that, um, except like, more research and, you know, keep trying at it. And, you know, what are you going to do? Right. Like, like I can't change the Creative writing classes for historians. I I don't know. I don't know what it is. 
Right. I mean, I do think that how you write history really matters. And that's something that I prioritized in my second book a lot was writing uh, differently than most academics and writing better, I hope. You know, we'll see. My third book, I'm sort of trying to combine the first and the two in terms of style. So we'll see how that works out uh, or if it mm. doesn't really work. But so, yeah, it's, it's not that I have a problem with people changing the story and getting the facts wrong, but don't change it to make it more like today. To me, that makes it less interesting. Right. There's plenty of drama in the past, um, especially if you're writing about empires and stuff like that. Right. So, Audrey, um, speaking about, uh, you know, historical fiction and transitioning into like what people are kind of looking at today, we have another question for you. Hi, Professor Audrey. This is Guneet. I'm calling from Noida, India. Uh, I loved your book, Aurangzeb, uh, The Man and the Myth. And it also inspired me to actually go to uh, Aurangabad and actually visit the place where uh, he was actually uh, spent his last few days. So uh, my question is as follows. Uh, you always mention how, so the, uh, you know, how these days in present circumstances, those who call Aurangzeb a bigot are actually, and you know, uh, what they're basically doing is it's, it's giving cre credence to actually demonize Muslims. Uh, but how I would want to, you know, look at this fact is that there is enough evidence in your book itself, which shows that how Aurangzeb was quite different from uh, Akbar. And if he actually call out Aurangzeb to be a different man, it's actually not bigotry, but a nuanced position. Your comments on this. Hmm. So thank you. That is a very well put question. So, um, so remember, Aurangzeb is everybody's favorite Indo-Muslim king to hate. Akbar is everybody's favorite Indo-Muslim king to love, right? So, so Akbar was Aurangzeb's great grandfather. Uh, Akbar built the empire. Aurangzeb possibly destroyed it. That that part's sketchy. Akbar definitely built it though. Okay, so why why don't I just compare Aurangzeb to Akbar? Say that Aurangzeb doesn't measure up and call it a day. One reason is that I don't see a lot of value in that question. I don't see a lot of purchase in it. Um, you know, when you compare two things in history, two people, two events, whatever, you have to ask yourself why, right? Like comparison is not valuable in and of itself. It has to have a purpose. And so why are we comparing these two great men? If the answer is, well, they're both fairly powerful Mughal emperors, right? Like they're the bookends of the, the Mughal empire, you know, as, as a large scale thing. And we want to know more about them. That's fine. But then we have to take all of the evidence into account, right? So there are things that might lead you to conclude, facts about each man, that, that Aurangzeb was less tolerant than Akbar, right? Akbar rescinded the jizya tax, which is a discriminatory tax on, on non-Muslims, right? Akbar did away with that. Aurangzeb reinstituted it halfway through his reign, right? Like that, that's not looking so good for, for the Aurangzeb tolerance-intolerance debate. On the other hand, the percentage of Hindus at high levels of the Mughal nobility uh, was more, it was 50% higher under Aurangzeb than it was under Akbar, right? He increased oh. the number of Hindus in the higher levels of the Mughal nobility by 50% as compared to his great grandfather. That would seem to, to indicate, you know, that things were looking a little bit better for, for Hindus in Mughal India, at least, you know, an elite educated class of Hindus. So if you want to compare the two men, that's not my project, but that's fine. That can be your project. But you do have to take all of the evidence into account. You can't cherry pick it. You can't ignore things that are inconvenient. And what you're going to end up with is a nuanced picture that, according to some measures, Akbar did th certain things that we would now today judge as better than Aurangzeb, and vice versa is also true, that Aurangzeb does better than Akbar, according to certain things. 
The one reason why I don't find this all that interesting is that it's really all about today, right? It's really all about us and our standards and how we mm-hmm. feel. And in my opinion, there is so much more to know about the Mughal past and about any history than how you feel about it today and whether you like it today. So I prefer to ask the other, in my opinion, more interesting questions. And what's up with him asking about it against like the information you provide in your book? Um, like, right. Didn't he say your book oh. presents this? What was up with that? Oh, so, okay. So, so my book was sort of widely portrayed by people who did not actually read it as an apology for, for <laughs> Aurangzeb and a sort of like rehabilitation Solid. of this king. Some people <laughs> think it's like a love sonnet for him or something. Like I'm like personally interested in this dead king. Like, I mean, there's some weird stuff out there, you know, on social media. Anyways, none of that is true. Like it's in some ways, it's actually a boring project. It's a sort of historian's even handed take. And look, Aurangzeb was the most powerful, richest guy of his time. He was the richest man alive. He controlled the most territory and certainly had the most people within his empire. Um, when you have a sort of you know terrestrial-based empire like that uh, in pre-modern times, like before the colonial period, like you tend to be pretty ruthless. Um, and Aurangzeb was like really ruthless. So there's like a lot of like I don't know bad information or bad facts in you know about Aurangzeb. Uh, you know, looking from a, a modernist standpoint, um, like the guy went around like killing a lot of people. Uh, he practiced a scorched earth policy. That's exactly what it mm-hmm. sounds like. You literally scorch the earth so that no one can eat. Uh, I mean, there were massive famines under him. Him, you know diseases killed off whole whole towns so on and so forth he was like waging war like for the last like almost 30 years of his life uh to no great gain so like you know if you're looking for for a rehabilitation of Aurangzeb, like i recommend you do not read my book um but i think that i think that one thing that happened due to this sort of public misrepresentation of the book was that some people came to it and they were like oh yeah now we're gonna see what like these crazy white westerners uh... think about Aurangzeb, how much they love this guy and then they read it and they're like oh <laughs> like, <laughs> like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait. He's killing how many people? He's like doing what? Um, and you know, like I said, like I mean, like I'm not trying to rehabilitate anyone. Like that's that's ridiculous. Like I'm trying to do an even-handed historical analysis. Now it is true that I refuse to condemn Aurangzeb according to modern standards because I just don't see the point of it. Like that serves modern political interests and a sort of anti-Muslim agenda in India that I do not want to be a part of and in fact actively criticize um and it just tells me nothing interesting you know like i said there's a lot more to know about history than how you feel about it today so 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 then my question for you would be like let's say so folks are listening to this mentorship podcast and let's uh, let's assume a lot of them are theater people right just because that's the folks that we know and that we're talking to what what pieces of your why is it why would you say it's so important to access and 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 absorb ideas from other folks in other industries like what about your work your approach to your job your sort of like strategies in using social media to forward you know the the things that you care about what what what's a bleed over what can people who don't care about this king that are listening take away from this episode mm. That's a really great question. Um, I mean, I guess one thing that I, I think at least I've been relatively successful at is sort of using Twitter for my own advantages um, and for, for my own purposes, right? Like, like I don't tweet in anger and I don't tweet just anything, um, right? Like I, I am actively trying to achieve a couple of different goals and draw attention to specific issues. Um, and that seems to have spoken to, to a lot of people, right? So like mm. focus focus helps. Um, but you know, 
it's interesting what you say, right? That like, you know, for theater people who don't care about this king, like maybe theater people should care about this king. Like there's actually a play about him um, that was written during his lifetime. It was written by Dryden, the poet uh, laureate of England at the time. Um, and it's like, I mean, it's this completely like insane vision of Aurangzeb that does not like match reality. But like, I don't know, maybe someone's just staged that in New York. Like I would be there, you know, I would throw seats, <laughs> I'll pay. Um, <laughs> you know, so, so yeah, I, I hope that, I think that there is bleed over and something to, to take away and how to sort of, you know, Maybe well, maybe another thing to take away is just how to speak to different kinds of people, right? Like, mm. as an academic, I was trained to speak to other academics. Like, I spent seven years writing a dissertation that is literally for an audience of five people on my dissertation committee. Like, that's who the audience is, like, no one else. And, you know, and so, like, it wasn't easy to, like, branch out and, like, learn how to actually write something that anyone really wanted to read. Um, but, like, I appear to have, you know, I don't know, somewhat succeeded or halfway or we're working on it. Um so, you know, you, you can do you can do with your career what you will to some degree. Um, but I will say one thing I'll say is that I did ignore some advice along the way. So I don't know. Maybe you shouldn't take every word of my advice so seriously. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So access I mean, and approachability are kind of go hand in hand in this story, right? What do you mean? So like Twitter gives people access mm-hmm. and that makes you more approachable, thus making history more approachable. Oh, absolutely. To a technological age, you know. Absolutely. Um, You know, and I mean, you know, there are some historians who, you know, they don't like writing for a popular audience. They think it's sort of a dumbing down of history. Um, And I don't think that that's true at all. Um, But I also just don't think it's like, it's like very nice, right? Like, not everyone can become a historian. Like, not everyone is going to, you know, be in school until their 30s and like, you know, not be able to get a job thereafter, like most of our history (laughs) PhDs, you know, seem to be in that position right now. Right. So it's like, but like, you know, one one of my colleagues wrote several years ago now that history is everybody's discipline. Uh, everyone cares about history, right? Everyone cares about the past, whether it's your country's past or your personal past and where your grandparents came from or whatever. Like everyone has something that they care about in the past. Um, and so to me, like that's an opportunity because historians bring to the study of the past, like this whole complex set of methodologies and ways of thinking. And like, I'm not going to train anyone in historical method over Twitter in the same way that I can in a PhD program, but like I can do a little and it's Mm -hmm. something that everyone has an interest in. So why not try? Absolutely. 100%. We have a last question. That's a really good, uh, good one to take us into the, into the end of this amazing episode. So let's hear what uh, that question is. Can to know about your new book, the Aurangzeb and the Lake. Uh, I congratulate you and uh, please tell me where can I get the copy of this book with those Ahmed Shah from Jammu and Kashmir, India. Ooh, you have a new book coming out? Uh, so <laughs> I am working on a, a new book. Uh, the new book is on Sanskrit histories of Indo-Muslim rule. You have Muslim kings in India for slightly over 500 years, the late 12th century, like 1190s, into like the 1710s and 20s when the Mughal Empire falls apart. And various Muslim kingdoms ruling different parts of India. We know about this history largely from Persian sources. Persian was the sort of language of high Muslim culture at this period of time. Um, And so, you know, all these Muslim dynasties like wrote their own histories. That's great. I want to know what another group of people thought, which were India's traditional learned elite who were still mainly working and writing in Sanskrit. So I have collected a body of about three dozen Sanskrit histories, 
Many people think that's an oxymoron, by the way, that there was everything else written in Sanskrit, but somehow not history. Um, mm. Anyways, I've collected about three dozen Sanskrit historical works that talk about Indo-Muslim political uh, actors and dynasties. And I want to know what they thought about the largest set of political changes in second millennium South Asia. So that's that's the new project. Uh, you know, give, give me another year or two before it comes out. <laughs> You're so fucking cool. <laughs> oh my God. I could sit here and talk to you all day. This is the coolest conversation we've had thus far. Sorry to all of our guests. <laughs> can, can I just say to my students who think that I like drone on in lecture, see, somebody actually wants to talk to me. <laughs> oh my God. And, and not just for an hour. I, can I just, can I write you on Twitter? Where can we find you? Yes, you can. So I tweet under, under my real name at Audrey Treschke. I also have a Facebook page, but Twitter, please. And she's got a tw- check mark, so she's she's verified. Let's go. We'll link it in the <laughs> link it in the show notes below, so that you guys can uh, follow her and uh, take some notes from um, from Audrey Trushke. Thanks for coming on our show. Thanks for having me. This is great, guys. On a completely selfish note. <laughs> This podcast, getting to finally like have conversations that other people can listen to with all these insane people I've that you and both I have met throughout our lives, I think it's yeah. maybe my very favorite part of this so far. In, in a completely self-serving way. I, I yeah. Like I was saying earlier on the episode, I just cannot believe how fascinating everyone else is. I feel so stupid sometimes. Not even stupid, just uninteresting. I'm like, oh yeah, you know, you do Broadway and you do things like that and shows and stuff and like people want to hear from you. And I go, you know what? I don't want to hear from me. I want to hear from everybody else because they're so cool. And this conversation we had with Audrey was mind-blowing. Yeah, and that's kind of the cool thing about podcasting, right? And I think this podcast in in general, not to like toot our own horn, but it's like... That was me tooting. We're not selling like a fancy podcast here, right? Like we're asking people to come have a regular conversation about the expertise that they hold and anything else that comes up. And so it kind of attracts by nature of that. It attracts these amazing folks who can like sort of bring us into their world. Talk approachably. Yeah, Yeah. man. That's what I think is so cool about it. It's just, uh, and it makes, it gives me like the want to go out and seek out more interesting people. You find somebody on the street, you're like, God, you know what? I've had a conversation. Do you want to go to coffee? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like it just makes me want to just like really reach out and start talking to people that I would never talk to, you know? Yeah, I think it goes back to uh, an episode that we did with Dana Powell, right? Where we were talking about people's fear of asking folks to go to coffee with them or to provide mentorship or to provide advice when in actuality, most people want to help. Uh, you guys, so if you want to follow Audrey on Twitter, and I highly recommend you do that, it's at Audrey Treshke. I know that's a difficult name to spell, so we'll put the links down in the show notes. We'll also link to her um, her lectures that she was referencing that are up on YouTube if you care to watch those. They're pretty interesting. And her books. Um, I can personally say it was daunting to tackle a book about Sanskrit theater that she gave me, but I've now read it twice, and it was so worth it. So if you're at all interested, I would recommend you give uh, you give a little try to these books. Absolutely. And you know what? You, you can head on over to Twitter and follow us at TM2C Podcast to ask your questions for our upcoming guests. We have a bunch more amazing, interesting people coming up in our season two this fall. So... I can't wait. I just can't wait. I'm so excited. I'm honestly excited. That's it for this episode of Take Me to Coffee with Audrey Treshke. And you know what's next. It's your turn. One, check out new episodes every Thursday on your favorite podcasting platform. Number two, for special bonus content, join our coffee club over at Patreon. That's www.patreon.com slash TM2C podcast. 
Your contribution helps us continue to make this podcast for you, with you, and completely ad-free. They will not get to us. No one can. We have trapped ourselves in a Faraday cage, and if you know what that is, you've got to listen to our next guest. Help me, I'm in a Faraday cage. No, no radio waves can come in here. Three, (laughs) download this episode and leave us a fantastic review. We'll be so thankful. Be really nice to me in particular. God, you know what? That, that That feels really forced. What are you talking about? That, that whole thing felt really forced. Are you fucking directing me on our no, outro? No, not at all. I'm actually just, <laughs> I'm making comment. I'm, I'm improvising. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Jez. I'm Andrew. And you know what? We'll see, we'll you, see next you next week. week. Tell you what, man, it's getting better. Keep us off script. <laughs> Keep just us off script. March <laughs>